0: Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Hello, Ecclesia. Pastor Ian Graham here. Well, it's a joy to be able to bring you the conclusion to our series on the book of Revelation, and it's been. Uh, Just an incredible experience walking through this text over the past several months and seeing how the book of Revelation is not just about the future, but it's about life in our present reality right now. And one of the beautiful things is that as we've unpacked Revelation, we've been moving towards this climactic moment, this vision that John receives of the future that awaits. And this vision invites us to live in light of that future in the present, in the here and now. And so today, it's a joy and an honor to preach to you, to to open the scriptures together from two of what I think are some of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. So let's begin. So the first question I have for you as we're uh, just unpacking this incredible reality is what do you imagine heaven to be like? I don't know if you saw the show The Good Place, but I thought The Good Place did A great job of capturing so much of our cultural expectations of heaven. Basically, the good place place depicted heaven as a a great place where anything you want is immediately available to you. The good place even had Janet, a not-quite-human cosmic being who is all-knowing, basically all-powerful, who can appear at any moment's notice and provide you what you are asking for. But I also found The Good Place to be an interesting commentary on heaven, not just in the ways that it sort of played into our cultural expectations, but in some of the more subtle ways that it told the story. First of all, in The Good Place, heaven was a town. It wasn't a cloud or some ethereal setting. It was a small village of people. There was an earthy quality to the afterlife and the good place that I found incredibly well done, and I hope to show you why as we finish our series on Revelation. Second, the story of the good place, as the title suggests, was set in heaven. There's a great difficulty, a degree of of difficulty in setting a story in heaven because most stories involve conflict. They involve some sort of uh, problem awaiting a resolution. And by default, by definition almost, heaven precludes that kind of interaction. And so the, the good place, though, in setting their story in heaven um, shows, I think, a glimpse for us of what it means to be God's people. You know, I don't know about you, but I talk to so many people When we muse about heaven or we sort of try to imagine what heaven might be like, for so many of us, our cultural expectation is that heaven is just a place with a sort of never-ending church service where at least you get to eat good food and everybody you love is there, but there's this kind of malaise that seeps in, right? You know, as humans, we were made to do something, we were made to put our hands to some work. We want to accomplish things. And heaven, at least in the way that it's often conveyed to us, seems like the antithesis of that desire. And so I think the good place begins to narrate a different way for us and in a way that's not so far from the vision that we're going to see uh, in Revelation 21 and 22. If you're familiar with Christopher Hitchens, Firebrand, atheist, he said of heaven, I wouldn't go if I was asked. I don't want to live in some celestial North Korea where all I get to do is praise the dear leader from dawn until dusk. That would be hell for me. As much as I think that Christopher Hitchens always picks on caricatures to levy his invective attacks against, I also think Hitchens has always been a good lens for how the people of God are articulating what they believe. Christopher Hitchens, during his life, would often just take the lowest common denominator of what was being said by the majority of primarily evangelicals. And for many of us, what he begins to unveil is that for many of us, our imaginations, when it comes to heaven, when it comes to God, are sorely lacking. So today, we want to look at two of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. And the beauty about Revelation 21 and 22, like the beauty of heaven itself, is that it doesn't completely wipe out what came before. Revelation 21 and 22 serves as the conclusion of the book of Revelation, the conclusion of the New Testament, the conclusion of the Bible as a whole. And what it does is it makes sense of all that has transpired. It narrates how Jesus in his life, his death and resurrection is a continuity of time and space. Between past, present, and future, between heaven and earth, the end of the Bible picks up on the Bible's greatest themes and transfigures them into their glorious destiny. And I want to explore today, I want to explore today this beautiful promise, this glorious destiny that awaits us. And I hope during our time together, that you won't just begin to get a glimpse of heaven, that you will begin to yearn for it, and that you'll begin to live into its reality right here in the present. So let us read together the passage that begins this beautiful narration of heaven. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. So much of this incredible image and vision will require no commentary. It's so beautiful on its own merit, but... I do want to point out a couple of things. First of all, it always struck me as a bit strange upon my first readings of this passage. Why is, does the sea have to go by the wayside? Why is the sea no more? I mean, God did, didn't make God make the ocean? What's he got against it now? And I personally, I always feel this sense of transcendence and awe standing next to lakes and seas and oceans and rivers. But for John's first readers... And really, as a larger theme in the Bible as a whole, the theme uh, of the sea, the, the ocean, is a place of chaos, of primordial evil. John, in saying the sea was no more, is not a statement about how God feels about the oceans. It's a theological statement, saying that all that contends against God's good purposes in the world has been exhausted and overcome. John is picking up on the promises from Isaiah 65 of a new heavens and a new earth. And John writes of the holy city coming down out of heaven. And this is so important for us as we begin to see what heaven is really like. We're not flying away to heaven. Heaven is coming down to earth. And there is at last a final joining of heaven and earth the Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis. Humanity wed to one another as Adam beholds Eve and proclaims in song, At last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Jesus begins his ministry in John's gospel at a wedding, saying that God has saved the best wine for last, and here the new creation is being brought forth. In the words of Revelation 11 verse 15, the kingdom of our Lord is finally and fully becoming the the kingdom of our world. Finally, God's will is being done fully on earth as it is in heaven as Jesus taught us to pray because the two, heaven and earth, to borrow language from Genesis, have become one flesh. And now the gospel is proclaimed to John, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God, and they will be his peoples. If you go back and you read the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2 tells us that God planted a garden. A garden to be the setting of relationship, of purpose, of life to unfold. And Genesis 3 tells us that God walked through the garden in the cool of the evening. Ecclesia, I say this to you so often, but if you wanted to summarize the whole of the Bible in one phrase, you could could do a lot worse than saying that the Bible is the story of God pursuing us to be with us, God with us. This is our glorious destiny as Revelation is showing to us, but also this is what we celebrate and what we enter into in the Advent season that we are approaching next week. And look at what happens. As the kingdom of our world becomes the kingdom of our Lord, as heaven and earth are intertwined together in their glorious new reality, it says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first order of things have passed away. Ecclesia, for so many of us, we know that life is hard. The world is full of tears. And even if the pain and the sorrow isn't at our doors at this exact moment, we, we struggle to look at the world and see anything but unrelenting pain in the lives of our neighbors and the lives of people in our world. But as the gaze of Jesus falls fully upon us in the joy as, as heaven has finally come to earth, as he lifts our heads and says to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. He raises his nail-scarred hands to our cheeks. He wipes away the tears from our eyes and he says, Welcome home. I think often what this moment will be like. And I think about the notion from Psalm 56 verse 8 that tells us that God holds all of our tears in a bottle. Like the woman poured out the expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet prior to, her, prior to his burial, we are greeted with our tears being poured out, not in waste or in erasure, but in anointing, our sorrows being transposed into the key of heaven, being redeemed from their depths. And like Jesus' tears brought forth new life, new life to Lazarus as he stood outside of the tomb of his dear friend, as he wept over the life of loss and mourning. So our tears cascading down, our glorified faces have something to say in the world that is to come. I know for so many of us, we have lost loved ones. We have endured great tragedy and sorrow, maybe even abuse. And I think That we can find all the solace and peace in the world in this moment because God will certainly bring us comfort, yes and amen, but He also will refuse to deny that which we have experienced. When Jesus appears to His disciples upon His resurrection, He can invite them to touch the scars in His hands because there's something about the suffering of this world that has been transfigured, that has been overcome. And just as we carry deep and profound scars in our hearts and in our lives, we see that Jesus will not erase them, but he will make sure that nothing is wasted. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then Jesus says in Revelation 21, See, I am making all things new. What things? Which things? All things. You see, one of the things that Christopher Hitchens clearly did not grasp, and sadly so many of us as Christians still fail to grasp, is that God made every inch of this world and he loves it. And he loves us. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24 says. All things means all things. God is not some cosmic deity floating in the ether. He is the transcendent God who draws near to us in the flesh and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus taking on flesh gives us a glimpse of what is meant by making all things new. What if every inch of human culture, things like art and politics and science, what if every human relationship, humanity's relationship to creation and the earth, the relatedness of the animal kingdom to one another, could all be made new by the love of God? What would that look like? Well, the point that Revelation 21 and 22 are making is that it would look like the glorious destiny that awaits us in heaven The rest of Revelation 21 shows the detail of the heavenly city. Like the detail of the tabernacle that was constructed upon the liberation of the people of Israel from Egypt, Revelation 21 is a work of spirit-empowered human culture. It's so incredible that Revelation 21 depicts the glorious future that awaits for us as a city. What are cities but a work, a collective work of human culture. Rob Bell points out that the story began in a garden and it ends in a city. What is a city but a collection of gardens? Gardens are what we make of the world when we partner with God in His purposes, in His relationship, and His relatedness to the world. God makes a world that is dynamic, that is not static. He invites us to reign alongside of Him. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. For those of us who have been told that heaven is just this place where this eternal church service happens, where there's endless singing, I hope that you can see what's going on in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is not saying that heaven is this static place where nothing happens. It is trying to say that it is the beginning of a new story, the story of life as it was intended to be, where God's love is at the center of everything. C.S. Lewis writes of this kind of story in his book, The Last Battle, the conclusion of the Narnia series. He says, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, and all their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on for ever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Ecclesia, Do you like to work with wood? Do you like to paint? Do you like to build things? Do you like to hike and explore? Do you like to play sports and games? Do you wish that you could build a filtration system that would provide clean water to everyone in the world? Do you wish that you could sit down with your grandmother and just be together? John is narrating a vision of a heavenly city with elements of human culture and he's telling us that the very real joys of earth that we so readily move towards await us in eternity but they are transfigured by the one thing that makes us turn outwards from ourselves to serve others the very presence of god revelation 21 verses 21 through 23 say i saw no temple in the city For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light, and and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's no temple in the city, because every inch of the city is infused with the presence of God. The city elsewhere is described as being cube-shaped, referencing the shape of the Holy of Holies, the place where God's manifest presence is felt. The warmth of the love of Father, Spirit, and Son lights the city and the nations. Those who have previously walked by the light of their own torches of injustice and self-regard now walk by the light of the Lamb. The kings of the earth in their earthly reigns were bent upon bringing honor and glory upon themselves, but now, now rightfully so, they give honor and glory to the Lamb to whom all glory is due. Revelation 21 shows us the redeemed politics of eternity, everything in its right place. The river of the water of life flows, bringing healing to the nations. Swords turned into plowshares. The tree of life, that which was cut off from Adam and Eve because of their betrayal, now freely available, bringing healing and life and peace. In Genesis 3, when the first woman and the first man disobeyed God, it tells us that they brought a curse into the world. This curse insidiously infused itself into every nook and cranny in our relationships with God, in our relationships with one another, our relationship with creation. This curse, Paul describes as the sting of death, the ache that we feel when we confront mortality. And when we see the works of our hands, the idolatry that we so easily gravitate towards constructing. But look at what Revelation 22 says about the curse. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp for, or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The curse is no more undone by Jesus. We will see him face to face. We will. He will mark us. We will worship him. We will be at home in the cosmic shalom of God. We will reign alongside him. We will fully realize the purpose for which we were made in God's image, fully living out of the security and the foundation of His love for us and serving one another and creating and making and beautifying out of that love. And this day will never end. There will be no more night. This is the eternal seventh day, the never-ending Sabbath rest that God has for each one of us. Ecclesia, I hope you're beginning not just to see it, not just to imagine it. I hope you're beginning to yearn for heaven. Heaven is so much better than its PR. And it is the promise that God holds for us, the hope that meets us in the end. But here's the thing. As we've said constantly throughout this series, Revelation is not just about somewhere over there and sometime down the road. Revelation is giving us a glimpse of the present way things really are and a glimpse of the future that should give us power and urgency in the present. Ecclesia, what if we began to live out of the well of this glorious future right here and right now? How would we love one another if we knew that we would spend eternity together? How would we serve one another if everyone we encountered, as as Lewis reminds us, was no mere mortal, but was made with an eternal destiny? How would we work for God if we truly believe that His goodness was would meet us at the end and would guide us every step of the way? Ecclesia, this vision is meant to be a comfort against all the wiles of empire, is meant to secure us from temptation, is meant to comfort us in the face of sin and, and death. Yes, and amen. But it's also given as an encouragement to conquer. In the present, to pursue this vision right here and right now, the presence of God fully realized with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This vision of heaven is meant to light us with a Holy Spirit fire that goes into all the world as Jesus commanded us, teaching people to obey all that He has commanded, because there. There, there is life and life abundantly. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Let us live into that future right now. Jesus says at Revelation 22, See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay everyone according to their work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Jesus is creating urgency, saying, I am coming soon. As we've seen so often throughout history, many will claim to know when he is coming, but nobody knows the hour or the moment. But Jesus is saying, don't give your allegiance, your heart, to the things that are immediate of this world. He lists some of those things in Revelation 22. He says, things like falsehood and idolatry will try to pull our hearts towards something lesser. But Jesus here is not dwelling on the sins, not dwelling on the things that are less than. He simply is inviting us to another way, to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb, to receive the grace of Jesus, to receive his invitation to eat from the tree of life, to enter through the narrow gate that is his way, and to find that there is rest for our weary and heavy laden souls. And Jesus ends with an invitation A call and response between heaven and earth. The Spirit of God and the church inviting all to come. And those who hear this proclaimed in response saying, Yes, Lord, come. Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears say, Come. And let everyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift. Ecclesia. This vision of heaven is an invitation, an invitation towards the future, yes and amen, but an invitation to lay down our own ways in the present, to lay down our own attempts of self-satisfaction, to lay down our own attempts at, at immediate gratification, to lay down our own attempts at trying to forge a life ahead on our own. Jesus says, you don't have to fight your way through this life. You can receive my life as a gift. Come. Let anyone who is thirsty, let anyone who is burdened or heavy laden, let anyone who needs this future to get through the present, who is lost, who is enduring sorrow or abuse or persecution, let anyone take from the tree of life. Let anyone drink from the water of the river that flows from the throne of God. Let anyone come. Ecclesia, this invitation stands for us today. It is an invitation to live in the present in light of this future. His promise is sure and secure. His destiny awaits us. His presence will light our lives forevermore. And that life that begins in eternity will only be the beginning The end of many things, yes and amen. The end of death and pain and suffering and mourning. The end of our tears streaming down our faces. And the beginning of our washing our lives in the river of the eternal love of God. Of knowing it as an incredibly present reality. Immersing ourselves in the love of God. And the beginning of the glorious destiny of what it means to be made in His image. Revelation 22, verse 20 says, Surely I am coming soon. And John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the the cry of our hearts in light of this glorious future. Let all who are thirsty come. Let all who are thirsty echo this prayer and this yearning for this day. The invitation is for you. He invites you to live in light of this future, in your present right now. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com